And a song about coffee, mucus, and pain is an oddly perfect way to start this week's set of shows here on This Is Hell. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. And when you are a political leader, you are being compared to Hitler. And your best defense is, actually, I'm acting a lot more like Pinochet than Hitler. You know things are not going well for democracy within your government. And that's exactly what is happening in the current India of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his ruling BJP party. Modi, who was overwhelmingly re-elected for a second term in 2019, just prior to the pandemic, has used the virus's cover to expand his agenda and impose all sorts of new laws on the public. Modi's project had already slashed taxes on the wealthiest and corporations, cut social spending for those who needed it most, and had privatized much of the public sector, selling it off to businesses with far too many connections to the Modi government and his party. Meanwhile, Modi and the BJP had stoked the flames of divisiveness, with those flames turning into full-blown fires of Hindu nationalism, with violent mobs targeting those who are not, in their view, real Indians. By the time the coronavirus came to India, Modi's nationalism and neoliberalism were ready to pounce, and without parliament convened, the government's power was unchecked as it doubled down on policies that have led even more inequality, poverty, and concentration of wealth and power into the hands of Modi, his BJP party, and his friends. In a few minutes, we'll consider what is happening in India and what that might mean for the threat of the far right rising around the world in this age of crises when we speak with Sayan Deb Chaudhry and Rajendran Narayanan, co-authors of the monthly review article, A Made in India Shock Doctrine, with a little help from Latin America. Sayan Deb is an assistant professor in the School of Letters at Ambedkar University, Delhi, whose writing often appears in the Indian Express. He has a book coming out in September, Utam Kumar, a Life in Cinema on the famous Indian actor who worked in Bengali cinema. You can follow Sayandeb on Twitter at Sayandeb. That's S-A-Y-A-N-D-E-B. Rajendran is an assistant professor at Azim Premji University in Bangalore in the School of Arts and Letters. Rajendran is affiliated with LibTech India, a team of engineers, social workers, and social scientists who inspired by the right to information movement and the idea of social audits focuses on various aspects of improving transparency, accountability, and democratic engagement in rural public services delivery. You can find out more about LibTech India at libtech.in, and you can follow LibTech on Twitter at libtechindia. You can follow Rajendran on Twitter at Rajendran underscore Nare, N-A-R-A-Y. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing today's show. Well, if it's Monday, it's usually Jess Lipka, but instead today it is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? You ever find a, you ever watch a crow pick out a fledgling bird out of a nest and smash it against a roof and then eat it? No, but I did see a crow fly with a beagle, a bagel on its beak. <laughs> I liked it more when it was a, ba- a beagle. <laughs> a beagle on its beak. So wild world. So what happened with this crow? I was just 
taking a break from my kid who I wanted to kill. And then I went out and watched a bird eat a, another baby bird. And I treated my kid a lot nicer <laughs> after that. What a world. Laddie one time told me that he saw a squirrel trying to kill itself by running headlong into a stop sign post over and over again. And he was just like, oh my God, I've never seen an animal try to commit suicide before. This weekend, I found out that next weekend, not only are friends coming to Chicago from that plague-riddled state of Michigan, but I also have friends who want to hang out, who are coming into town from, get this, Brazil and France, two nations where new variants have emerged, although the vaccination I got, the National Institutes of Health vaccine, which is being distributed by Pfizer, has shown effectiveness against two of the major variants. Do I actually, you know, want to see my friends during a pandemic. I mean, I'm dying to see my friends, but do I want to die to see my friends? No, I do not want to die to see my friends. More importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell? I think our friend from Brazil's in Syracuse right now, if that changes your opinion one way or the other. Uh, yes, but he's headed this way. This week's question from hell is, what are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? Is there a Syracuse variant? <laughs> we might find out shortly. <laughs> The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your amazing support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from Hell following our guests. Again, the question from Hell is, what are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover, sorry, I forgot it was Monday. Uh, this week's hangover cure is, see your doctor. They might send you to the hepatologist, but you really might need to see a psychiatrist. According to the geez, oh, Chuck, according to the article, Five Ways to Cure a Hangover That Really Work, which appeared at the US News and World Report website last week, visit your doctor for routine blood work or a new non-invasive ultrasound test called FibroScan that can help your healthcare provider assess your liver's condition in a more quantifiable way. I will not be doing that. That sounds very expensive. I'm not visiting a doctor for any reason. <laughs> They then quote Dr. Amon Ashkapur, an assistant professor of medicine and liver diseases at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York, saying, the liver doesn't tell you something bad Something bad is going on until really late in the game. <laughs> nice, thanks. U.S. News and World Report adds, if you're worried, have it checked out. Oh, thanks. Working with an addiction specialist or hepatologist, that's like a snake doctor? <laughs> can also be important to better understand and address why you're turning to alcohol in the first place, and then to put a plan in place that manages the potentially deadly symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. A hepatologist is a specialist of the liver, gallbladder, bilary tree, and pancreas. Ashkapur concludes, if you're drinking pretty often, you should see a specialist to talk about underlying depression and how to detox safely so it doesn't become deadly. That makes this week's hangover cure. Go see your doctor who may give you a referral to a liver specialist and or a shrink. My sister's a herpetologist, not a hepatologist. I didn't really realize there's only one letter difference from studying your pancreas to studying snakes. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And you can help with our horrible business model 
here at This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. And on this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we shared an interview from 2006 with sociologist Stephen Getz, a co-author of an article that had just appeared in Social Science Quarterly titled, Walmart and Countywide Poverty. I know, not a very catchy title, but sociologists are not the sensational, eye-grabbing headline type. Which is too bad, because if they were, maybe the establishment media would have noticed and reported on Stephen's study. And what the study showed was how Walmart's massive expansion of its stores, which started in 1987 and ran through 1998, had happened in places where once Walmart showed up, poverty increased far more than in places where Walmart had not opened a store. In other words, the study Stephen co-authored was a warning in 2006 when there were 3,289 Walmart stores in the United States to communities that may be considering a Walmart. And that warning was, there's a link between Walmart and counties experiencing increased poverty. Now, 15 years later, there are 4,743 Walmarts in the U.S., a nearly 50% increase, and my guess is that link to poverty is as strong as it was in 2006. And nobody was reporting on it back then, and the corporate media sure as hell ain't gonna say one word one about it now either. Meanwhile, we received an email from listener Chris B. a year ago, actually about 14 months ago, right after Chris discovered This Is Hell. Chris wondered back then if the name of our show was literal or figurative, if we truly believe this is hell, or if it is merely an evocative comparison. When Chris wrote last year, I pointed him to some of our past interviews and said it was up to him and everyone to decide on their own if this really is hell or not. After a year of contemplating, Chris got back in touch with us to ask again if the title of our show is literal or figurative. So on last Friday's Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to and listen to right now at patreon.com slash this is hell, I explained why this is hell and not only for Chris, but for everybody, including me, especially me. But you can only hear a criticism of Walmart, something you will never hear in the corporate establishment media as it erases the corporation's links to poverty and why this is hell by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Chris B. apparently did just that, subscribed and listened as this weekend we got another email from Chris. Chris writes of our Patreon response to whether This Is Hell is a literal or figurative statement. Thank you for the hilarious and boundlessly generous response, even though it's only been two months, not 14. Saying it's been over a year is definitely better for the story. And Chris is correct. I was suffering from COVID time again, which keeps happening to me. Ever since 2021 started, I, I, I keep thinking last year was 2021 and this year is 2022. That's how bad my virus fatigue or whatever the hell you want to call this is. I'm already skipping ahead another year. Chris continues, I love my new This Is Hell face masks. Now I never want to stop wearing one. That's scary. As it says for me, what I want to shout at the top of my lungs all day long, this is hell. If I can ever be of help or service beyond my financial support, please don't hesitate to ask. Kind regards, Chris. Again, you can hear why this is hell, which Chris found hilarious and our conversation from 15 years ago warning about the links between walmart and poverty by subscribing to this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell all subscribers not only get the extra show every week but they also get five bucks five bucks off of all of our merchandise which you can find at this is hell.com when they use their special code word which you can only find out what that special code word is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon. And Chris has used his discount to get the This Is Hell face mask. You can use it for the 
tin camping mug, the winter cap, the trucker's hat, the tote bag, the t-shirt, all of our stuff there at thisishell.com when you click on support. And thanks to Alex T, Cody K, and Andrew T for joining us as our newest subscribers on Patreon. Thanks, Alex, Cody, and Andrew. Coming up, comparisons of Indian Prime Minister Modi to Hitler are probably not as accurate as those comparing him to another dictator, Pinochet. We will also have This Week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? And we will tell you what's happening on the rest of this week's This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Neoliberalism was already well underway in India as it was imposed upon the people by the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his party, the BJP. But with the pandemic, Modi and his party have exploited the deadly virus to force through new laws, giving Modi even more power to crush any dissent to what critics are seeing as more and more unjust laws. Here to help us have a better understanding of the challenges facing the people of India today, our guests are Sayan Dev Chaudhry and Rajendran Narayanan, co-authors of the monthly review article, A Made in India Shock Doctrine, with a little help from Latin America. Sayan Deb, welcome to This Is Hell. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And Rajendran, welcome to This Is Hell. Thanks so much. You can follow Cyan Deb on Twitter at Cyan Deb, and you can uh, find you can follow Rajendran on Twitter at Rajendran underscore Nare. That's underscore N A R A Y. Let's start with you, Cyan Deb, because your name's first on the article, randomly, whatever. Uh, you start by mentioning Naomi Klein's 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine, and as you describe how disasters were used as cover to steamroll market fundamentalism by authoritarian regimes in Chile and Argentina, among others. Klein calls this disaster capitalism, which he defines as orchestrated raids on the public sphere in the wake of catastrophic events combined with the treatment of disasters as exciting market opportunities. You also point to Klein using the example of how the U.S. government saw wrecked post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans as an opportunity to, as Klein writes, use moments of collective trauma to engage in radical social and economic engineering. As you sum up, in short, there are several examples of how neoliberal deep states are eked out by gaslighting an economic crisis at an exigent moment to pawn civil liberties and natural resources. Syandeb, gaslighting is psychological manipulation leading to someone questioning their own sanity. What do you mean by gaslighting an economic crisis? How is that done? Because I think in recognizing that, people have a better sense of how to challenge that. Right, right. Thanks for the question. Well, what we meant basically is that, you know, trying to show show the economic crisis as a as a moment when you can ask less and less questions and, and the questions that uh, are to be asked in, in, a, in a more, uh, say, in more normal within court circumstances are to be postponed. You know, it's a, it's a suspension of one's logical uh, critique or question for the time being and thereby kind of, kind of you know, kind of uh, show, put a light, so to say, in terms of, Kind of, uh, you know, uh, saying, okay, this is not the time to ask questions. This is not the time to ask answers from me. Rather, just listen and let me do what, what I think is best for the country. 
Whereas, uh, you know, so that is what we meant by trying to use basically uh, a moment of crisis to stream roll a series of uh, uh, a policy or policy decisions, which were otherwise seen rather difficult to, to have got uh, public uh, san uh, sanction or even, even executive sanction, like parliamentary sanction and other things. And, you know, so that's what we, what we meant by, by, by gaslighting a moment of crisis to actually drive an old agenda, an agenda which was already there. And, um, um, you know, so that is what we meant so by, by this line. That sounds kind of like a, a permanent installment of a state of exception. So Rajendran, correct, can, absolutely. Rajendran, can neoliberalism? Does neoliberalism depend on always being in that state of exception in order to be implemented? Uh, maybe not always, but certainly. See, I think I think it, here we need to see it as a combination of two different things. One is the agenda of primarily pushing for a Hindutva, uh, a Hindutva nationalism, which is recognizing the nation state, uh, sort of equating the nation state with one particular religion, and that to forcing it through the gullet of every person, whether you are, whether you believe it in, uh, whether you believe in it or not. And so when you have a neoliberal apparatus standing on top of the platform of this kind of a violent nationalist agenda, then it becomes an easier thing to sell because people are already almost snuffing this opium of Hindutva everywhere. There's this, uh, there's this violent assertion of Hindutva, which is the predominant, uh, predominant uh, uh, culture of discourse over the last few years. In fact, I think that's where we need to take a step back before the entire pandemic happened, to just take a step back and see how things were unfolding in the country before that. Primarily before that, it was only Hindutva, largely Hindutva, and a little bit of neoliberal uh, principles in action. But since the pandemic happened, that just got exacerbated, I would say. So in some sense, what you see is that the neoliberalism got a fillip during this entire period, which may not have been as easy before that because uh, democratic institutions of debate, etc., were still existing. But right now there was nothing of that sort existing. So it became an easy thing for them to push forward. Rajendran, let me just follow up on that before I get back to Sayandeb. So did Modi run on a campaign of promises that he would pursue a neoliberal agenda? Because far too often we find that politicians do not run saying that they are going to impose neoliberalism. They then get elected and then they impose neoliberalism. So to what degree did Modi run on Hindu nationalism and to what degree did he run on neoliberalism, Rajendran? Actually, that's a very that's actually the crux of the entire thing because he did not run on neoliberalism. He ran on two planks. Primarily, he ran uh, he ran on the Hindu nationalism plank, and uh, and along with it, he promised good governance. Now, good governance is a very nebulous idea. Anything and everything can be brought under this broad umbrella of what constitutes good governance. And because India has about uh, a, a significant population of India is extremely poor. And we're talking about roughly about 600 million, right? That's the kind of population we're talking, which is really poor. Uh, so for them, for the entire mass, if you will, he has promised, a, he had promised a variety of uh, various kinds of social policies. Obviously, a lot of these social policies were mere promises. And one of the big partners of neoliberal agenda is how you, how you further certain technological agenda 
because technology gives you an aid to centralize decision making so at the base of it is at the at the front end of everything uh, there are two things at the front end one is uh, a so called people centric good governance second uh, i I, th- i think primarily it's hindu nationalism a little be- behind that is this uh, idea of people friendly social policies but i think the overarching thing is a push for technology and uh, and tech and and tech driven governance which is going to centralize all the decision making so i think if you look at it that's the arc of the entire principle under which modi has been operating In Sciendub, you and Rajendran, you write about how Modi at the beginning of the pandemic was trying to spin this rhetoric that we hear here in the United States, and I'm sure that it's everywhere in the world, that we are all in this together. But when you consider Hindu nationalism, doesn't that contradict the idea of Hindu nationalism, that we're all in this together? Do Hindu nationalists, did they want to be all in this together when it came to the pandemic? Because that's, I, I don't understand the contradiction there. well um again a very good question see uh, what has happened is that till from the from 2014 when modi first time the first uh, term he has consistently tried to kind of i mean you know kind of otherize kind of create a certain kind of polarization with the country's very large amount of muslim especially muslim population if not also other minorities and he has thrived in this majoritarianism by constantly trying to uh, you know in various ways sometimes directly sometimes hinting sometimes making fun by constantly trying to say that look india in india belongs to the hindus i mean basically the hindu middle class and uh, everybody else is 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 here by accident or by kind of you know by by historical errors and they should be they should also you know find themselves make themselves part of the majority by being there in terms of the terms set by the majority but when it came to pandemic he was the first to say oh you know we are all in this together so please help me in you know in kind of uh, trying to do this trying to do that please think like a one nation one country but this is precisely the narrative that he had been he disparaged uh, throughout his first term because that is precisely these people i mean the both of the bjp's political narrative is exactly the opposite of one nation and you know india is a, india is a mind bogglingly diverse uh, country so that is to, to, to just to start saying that you know india is made of only this kind of hindus and all is itself a problem but the moment he faced the pandemic he immediately tries to kind of say that, oh you know we are all so let's now become all become all help me in getting over so that was that was one very obvious way of trying to get people the same people in the fold who he has tried to demonize throughout his first term so sign up again just to follow up does uh, neoliberalism need nationalism and in this case the religious based nationalism to yeah. rationalize yeah. exploitation yes 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 absolutely so that is the point that we have been trying to make and that actually you know this was what rajendran said that this was kind of hidden in a broader uh, kind of narrative or so called innocent narrative of good governance and uh, you know corruption free governance and etc etc et but once the pandemic came i think it helped bring this 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 thing into the brought into relief the underlying nexus between uh, a new a very clear neoliberal agenda 
and the majoritarian agenda. And they kind of fed into each other in the sense that the neoliberal agenda said that, you know, uh, okay, we need to sell and, you know, become more market friendly. And the majority majoritarian idea said this is good for India. And this is, you know, this is, this is, this will make India great. This will make it a respected country in the world. And so, you know, you all please help me in creating this narrative of India is great. Obviously, I'm using great here, knowing very well that American listeners will be able to you know, make America great again. And Modi's, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 slogan was not very different. Maybe not the same words, but exactly the same things he said. So there, so this whole nexus between the majoritarianism, the, the right-wing Hindutva majoritarianism, and a certain kind of very aggressive neoliberalism was already there, but it kind of came into the open and kind of unapologetic way during the during the pandemic. And Rajendran, you point out how the uh, policies of Modi dating back to him becoming prime minister in 2014 have shown a redistribution upward when it comes to wealth, that inequality is growing, that the rich are becoming richer and the poor are becoming more poor. So Rajendran, how successful is Modi and the BJP at, at hiding that redistribution upward through the use of Hindu nationalism? I don't think they have, uh, they're hiding it at all. I think they're quite brazen about it. And it happens in very insidious ways. And it happens in the way, for example, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a concrete example that we work, uh, a social policy that we work uh, in very closely. So there is, this, uh, there is this program called the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, which promises a modicum of employment, just 100 days of employment per household per year uh, at minimum wages. Now, this is a demand-driven act, which was a very good rights-based legislation that was promulgated in 2005. And the whole idea is, is that there is, uh, the, the idea of the, the way the program is structured is that it will result, if implemented properly, it will result in some kind of a political redistribution of power so that the poorest can demand work when they need work in extremely dry, arid areas of parts of rural India. Now, given that it's a demand-driven nature, the program itself is a demand-driven program, what the government has done ever since Modi has come is they've made it a supply-driven program by uh, not allocating sufficient budget for the program. So if you're cutting the budget, if you're cutting the funding source at the beginning, what, what it does to the rural workers is that it atomizes them. It impedes their political capacity. It impedes their participation in the political process. They are, once they are atomized, they don't have enough sufficient employment opportunities in the villages and rural areas. So they tend to migrate. And when they tend to migrate to cities to work, they are uh, under the hands of contractors where there are no written contracts for work. There are no working conditions and the wages, because there's excess supply of labor in the cities, the wages are cut down. And there, is a, and, and, and there is absolutely no social protection measures taken. So all this is, uh, is, a, is a very insidious way in which this happens. And because people are, people are fighting for survival on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, formation of any kind of collective or, or a federation to demand certain social protection becomes a secondary thing. So I think uh, if you see the way this entire thing is structured, uh, it, it leads to a certain atomization of labor and the working class in India. I'm again talking about 500 million people. It's not a small number. 
But Rajendran, if these measures are made to undermine collective action, then what explains the massive farmer protests that have occurred this year and dating back to late last year? Why 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 hasn't those why, why haven't those measures by Modi worked to stop that kind of collection action in the streets of New Delhi and throughout in India? Right. So I think that's a slightly different class of people we are talking about. The set of people I was talking about were the complete landless laborers. They don't have anything to farm on their own. So they are dependent on other people to employ them. Whereas the farmer protest that we saw is a, is a, is a, is a slightly different class of people. And there we did see collective action and rightly so because they have some amount of cushioning in their respective areas, they were able to come to the cities and do some kind of collective action, especially in Delhi uh, and in some other cities as well, we saw it. But the set of people I was talking about is the absolute, uh, maybe the top, uh, sorry, the bottom uh, 20% of India's population. The farmers that you see maybe constitutes the next 10%. If you have to rank India from the poorest to the richest, then the, uh, earlier I was talking about the bottom 20%, the farmers, maybe the, the, the set of farmers who participate in the protest would constitute the next 10%. Sian W, you also point out that in, uh, you point out towards the dictatorship of Pinochet and how that serves as a good comparison to understanding Modi. You write in a military coup in Chile on September 11th, 1973, Pinochet overthrew the socialist government of Salvador Allende, assassinated the duly elected president, and went on to rule Chile for the next 17 years. The report of the Chilean National Commission for Truth and Reconciliation presents a sobering account of human rights violations. These were supplemented by prescriptions on economics by the Chicago School of Free Market Economists under the guide, guidance of Milton Friedman. So, Cyan, Deb, if people are so often they try to separate and put into a vacuum two different things, human rights and economics or politics and economics, as if economics exists outside of politics, as if it's some just objective thing that cannot have any real subjective impact on anyone. How can, Cyan, Deb, how can economics, I know this is a big question, supplement human rights violations? Well, uh, <clears throat> let me let me let us let me uh, uh, okay. Let me start by giving you an example, which we have briefly mentioned in the in the in the article as well. Is a decision taken uh, called the demonetization? Right. It was it was an economic decision. Right. That basically uh, suddenly, 86% of India's valid currency was made uh, invalid in a, in a matter of a few hours. And it was apparently done to prevent uh, you know, money laundering and black money and all, of, all, all, all sorts of... So it was an economic decision. But what it essentially, you know, it, it essentially tapped into, and many people immediately started to also, also found ground-level support because people thought this was a you know, kind of a master stroke so to say, to kind of uh, you know stop India's massive circulation of black market, a parallel parallel economy uh, that happened. But what it ended up being was a, was an absolute human rights violation, because people not only died standing in lines and people, because India has a enormous amount of cash, still cash culture. And many thousands of people were not only inconvenienced, and they, there, are, there are reports of people dying on the on the, on, the, on the lines for the, to the, to, in the banks to get their notes uh, kind of 
re-monetized after submitting the, the invalidated notes, etc. But what happened was that a very large part of the country's financial health got affected and it, and it, and it kind of became a massive violation of, 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 of human rights and of, of human choice in, this, in, in a sense. But because it was the first decision of this kind, many people thought that, oh, Modi was extremely uh, radical in this, in this decision. But basically, it was, it was essentially meant to channelize a large part of the, of the, of the economy towards uh, you know, non-money economy, which was also a neoliberal agenda to drive people into using credit cards and using wallets. And many of these new companies, which were actually making profit out of it, were also bankrolling the government from the back, which was very clear in the, in the, in the months to come. So it was, you know, so an economic, essentially a banking decision, which, is, which should have a more local impact, and a more economic impact, actually became a much bigger scale of violations uh, together. So this is one example of how this, this, this happens. Sorry, I just want to add one uh, point here. We also quote Letelier, Orlando Letelier, uh, in the article where he says, the violation of human rights, the system of institutionalized brutality, the drastic control and suppression of every form of meaningful dissent is discussed as a phenomenon only indirectly linked or indeed entirely unrelated to the classical unrestrained free market policies that have been enforced. And I skipped some lines. And then at the end, he says, uh, this particularly convenient concept of a social system in which economic freedom and political terror coexist without touching each other allows these financial spokesmen to support their concept of freedom within quotes while exercising their verbal muscles in defense of human rights. Now, I think this segment of Letelier's article, uh, earlier article that he wrote in 1976 is very critical for us to understand that the politics of a country, especially a form of authoritarian capitalism, cannot exist, uh, authoritarianism cannot exist, uh, authoritarianism in the form that we see today, which is uh, on the plank of a kind of religious fundamentalism, cannot exist without a neoliberal agenda. And just to add one more point when uh, Shine they've talked about neoliberalism, no, sorry, demonetization, is that uh, just around that time, one of the biggest proponents of Modi and one of the biggest supporters of his campaign is, this, uh, is the richest man in India. His name is Ambani. And Ambani launched a, a, a mobile phone company for mobile service company called Geo. And that got launched just a few weeks before demonetization happened. And Ambani has been the biggest recipient of the crony capitalism that uh, exists in the country today. So it's, it doesn't take uh, a genius to put the two and two together to see how politics combines with a certain kind of market fundamentalism and neoliberal agenda in this case. But Rajan Ran, keeping in mind that Pinochet's uh, dictatorship was in power until 1990, Milton Friedman called the Chilean economy of the 1980s the miracle of Chile, as it had employed his economic policies in 2008 on the PBS program. 2008, so this is long after Pinochet's not in power, uh, on the PBS program Commanding Heights, Milton Friedman said the Chilean economy did very well, but more importantly, in the end, and please don't scream at me for reading this, in the end, the central government, the military junta, 
was replaced by a democratic society. So the really important thing about the Chilean business is that free markets did work their way in bringing about a free society. So Rajendran, were, Friedman, were Friedman's economic policies disastrous for the people of Chile and forcing and empowering a military junta as Allende's foreign minister and ambassador to the U.S. believes? Or was it a free market miracle that also led to the democratic overthrow of a dictatorship as claimed by a Nobel Memorial Prize winner in economic sciences? The question is at what cost, right? We are talking about from 1973. And if it, uh, if, the, uh, if the removal of dictatorship has taken so many years, so many lives have been lost, so many people have, within quote, disappeared from the scene. And so much of civil liberties had to be, literally, as we also say, pawned, and natural resources and civil liberties had to be pawned for a certain kind of principle to be furthered. And that's exactly what we are seeing in India today as well, that civil liberties are at an all-time low. Uh, free market media freedom. May, pardon, media, media freedom. freedom. Media freedom, exactly. So civil liberties are at an all-time low. Media freedom is at an all-time low. Now, the loss of in, the institutional loss is going to take years to heal. Maybe 20 years later, if, if things go as they are, maybe 20 years later, uh, people will realize that people may uh, maybe uh, achieve that kind of consciousness to say that, okay, fine, it's time that we restore democracy. But what would we have lost in these 20 years is the loss of several democratic institutions in the country whose I, I, I have... It's already in, at a high time. It's at an all-time low. And when we're talking about loss of democratic institutions, we're talking every single democratic institutions in the country, including the top judiciary, which has been literally genuflecting to the government in terms of decision-making. So the, the question we need to really ask uh, in response is at what cost? Exactly. At what Shai. cost? Go ahead, Sandeep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just want to add one thing, very, very simply, that, you know, uh, because India is not technically a dictatorship, unlike the Pinochet regime, so it's a little more complicated to hear, Mark, you know, that, okay, this is where it began, this is when it ended, and thereafter that, a decade or two later, okay, oh, well, you have a free market, because India has a kind of a robust democratic system working in spite of all its problems for a long time till the Modi regime started to seriously, as Rajendran said, seriously trying to, to decimate the, 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 the guardian, the guardian pillars of, the, of, of democracy. And, and, and what is funny is that as in the last seven years, India's economy actually has become much poorer than it was in 2014. So but it is the GDP is low. The, the employment, unemployment is on an all-time high. There is a massive, massive... Uh, you know, labor, uh, the cuts in, in, in salaries, only only in the, in the second wave of the pandemic, which is now go, going, India lost some 34 million jobs in the, in the last, uh, you know, in this one month. I mean, salary jobs have been lost. So the, that kind of scale we are talking about when we're talking about the, the, the massive decimation of the economy. So even this, this, this fig leaf of the economy working under a dictatorship or a kind of a quasi-dictatorship, or a quasi-majoritarian neoliberal policy, I mean, that is not true anymore. I mean, it would have been one, uh, uh, you know, major showcase because usually dictators are, uh, are known for having an economic revival in their in their in their own fiefdoms. But uh, I mean, Modi fails in even that. I mean, it's the worst economy that India is doing in the last 
the last few decades, frankly. So the thing I don't really understand about that, though, Sayandeb, is to is success in Modi's neoliberalism and was success in Pinochet's and freedom and Friedman's. Is that dependent upon a short, slow starvation, as Letelier calls it? Does and are the people aware that this is an austerity program? where we just have to bite the bullet for a while and then everything will work out fine. Is that the promise that Modi makes? Well, if you ask me, the pro- here the policies of distraction, that whenever there is a question, whenever people are asking questions, it is not, there are not being told, okay, just hold on, make some sacrifices. It's simply, okay, well, you see Pakistan is, is upon us. Uh, hello, but China is most, most likely taking over our territory. Uh, hello, but you know, we are facing with lots of enemies. You know, it's a classic case of uh, distracting whenever there is a sense of crisis that is building up in the country. And uh, last in the last one year, of course, this has not always been successful, this massive propaganda-based, uh, you know, distraction uh, policy. Because things have been very roller coaster since 2019, December, since the massive uh, the citizenship law came and there was a massive India-wide protest. And when it ended, the pandemic and the later part of the first last year came the farmers' protest. So the narrative of distraction and propaganda that uh, they are setting to take to kind of keep people busy in and away from uh, you know biting the um, you know the, the troubles is now being tested also because of other factors. But this did work very well between 14 and, and 19, that you know, there's a constant uh, politics of distraction that, that, uh, that happened. And Rajendran, as you were pointing out earlier, Modi ran on a campaign, a kind of nebulous anti-corruption campaign. Is, Rajendran, is the inevitable outcome of neoliberalism, cronyism, and if so, why? Can you have neoliberalism without the cronyism? That's a very hard question. I don't have any empirical evidence to suggest yes or no, uh, but it seems like it. Uh, it seems like at some point it's going to boil down to some people making a lot more money than many others. So, and that cannot happen without certain kind of political favoritism or uh, some kind of so-called regulation offered by the political dispensation. Uh, however, it would be a little too, too hasty for me to hazard a guess that, uh, to hazard a statement, an affirmative statement that cronyism is definitely a, a product of neoliberalism. Uh, that's, that would be a little hard for me to straight away say or claim. But it seems likely. There's a correlation, uh, and not causation. Yeah. You, you might both be aware that only recently did any news about India make it into the U.S. media when there were these strikes taking place. It took a couple of months for that to get into the U.S. media. 
Sai and Deb, as you and Rajendran write, the anxiety and discontent were further aggravated as Modi summoned a unilateral lockdown, bringing India's large informal workforce, approximately 500 million people and their families, to the fulcrum of life and death, the sight of thousands of helpless and resilient migrant workers making epic journeys across the nation is now part of the nation's miserable archive of calamities. Millions were left hungry and foraging for survival, and over a thousand have died due to starvation, exhaustion, or accidents. So, Sayandeb, in the past few weeks, U.S. media has begun reporting on India in light of the recent newest surge of COVID-related deaths, shortages of vaccines, poor distribution programs, and always accompanied by images of burning funeral pyres. What do we miss in understanding the recent surge in pandemic deaths in India and its shortage of vaccines and distribution problems when we do not have the context of long before the recent surge, 500 million people were already on the edge of life and death with millions hungry, even foraging for survival and over a thousand dying. What happens when we don't have that context? What don't we understand about the current surge? Okay, um, again, complex question to answer in one go, but I'll just, I'll just say a couple of points, but I'm sure Rajinder will have something to add to it. Uh, I would say that, see, it is, that is one of the reasons the, 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 the whole article was actually written, to kind of connect between uh, the causations, the correlations between the uh, majority, majoritarianism-dependent uh, policy and uh, politics, the real, I mean, you know, how it went from year to year, and there were various checks and balances which were slowly done away with. There were various ways in which the government had tested people, and most of the countries, um, you know, kind of, kind of middle class, which was sold to this idea of a reformist, strong man, prime minister who was trying to bring together I and mean, kind of give India this direction and. Uh, you know, kind of way, and slowly and slowly, a lot of uh, laws and, and and whatever was left after years of neoliberal policy was aggressively pursued was also done away with. So th- there, it's not that one fine morning India landed in this tsunami of COVID that happened last month, but this was first of all this was inevitable because. Because this is not the only BJP, not about the BJP government, but throughout the last 50 years, increasingly less and less amount of investment has been made on public health, in, in, in public health. So India has virtually given up, the, the government has given up, almost has almost virtually taken its hands off public health. And it has been done systematically, it has been done slowly, it has been, but it has been done gradually to ensure that private players have the last say in public health, which of course means that the public, technically, uh, India's public health is outside the capacity for 70% of its people. I mean, even the middle class think twice before taking their, taking their, their you know, people to, 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 to private hospitals because they're so expensive. And of course, there's a thriving insurance business. So the point I'm trying to make is that this, this is a crisis of, of a public health, of an epic proportions. But this did not come in one day. But at the same time, Modi did have the time, at least a year's time, to specifically address questions of vaccines, oxygen, oxygenation, and of course, medicines for uh, the, the second surge or the projected uh, second wave of COVID. 
But he sat on it because of his hubris and he did not do anything. Instead, actually, when you might know he's constructing a, a grand uh, uh, palace kind of a, what is called a central vista spending 20,000 crore. Uh, and uh, it's a humongous amount of public money being spent on nothing but creating another, you know, it's like, it's like you know, one of those, one of those giant constructions that will, that will happen basically to create a new parliament, nothing that India needs, but nothing but only thing that Modi fancies. But so one year went into these things and the, and the litany of things that we have mentioned, you know, new laws, the parliament never sat down, he was up into campaigning, he was trying to win elections, the state elections in parts of India, but everything he did except take precautions or take preparations for COVID. And so this is both a long-term myopia in public health, married to a short-term aggressive belief in one's capacity to be blind to an obvious danger of a second, second COVID uh, surge. So these are, these are obviously related things. And Roger, if I may, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, I just want to add a couple of things. One is uh, uh, the assault on federal principles. I think that's a very important thing in right. this entire story. Is, uh, is that's, that's one of the hallmark of authoritarian governments, right? Authoritarianism which is the centralized decision-making, lack of any consultation. So when the lockdown, national lockdown was announced on 24th of March, 2020, it followed the textbook recipe of how <clears throat> monetization was done in 2016, November 8th, 2016. Both had a sort, there, there, is a, there is a replica of the way the two of them were thrusted upon the entire country without any kind of consultation, let alone with people, even with uh, the constituent state governments. Right. Or the so, bureaucracy. Or not, the, neither the bureaucracy, not the civil service, uh, not the state governments, not the executive, no one. So this is what there are. This is uh, this is kind of monopolizing decisions and socializing losses. So that's not federalism. Second thing is now suddenly this year, uh, there was a very nice editorial by this medical journal called Lancet, which talks about how the despite the despite despite several things that many medical experts had said, the, they had not convened at all till, uh, till the second wave hit dramatically. And by then, because they had to win elections in a state, uh, state election. So the entire uh, Modi government, the entire BJP government, all the top honchos were busy campaigning for elections in another state while there were deaths and diseases just wreaking havoc through the country. So I think, and now, with the vaccination, the way it's been rolled out, now suddenly they are saying that, oh, the state government should bear the cost. Where will the state government get the money from, given how the taxation laws have changed? They imposed another taxation called goods and services tax, which centralized the taxing. So now the state governments are dependent on the central government to release money. And many of these state governments are strapped of cash. So the way I, th I think the design is very critical to understand why the second wave is the way it is. Uh, so now suddenly the, the, when the central government is made the state governments poor, they made them dependent on the center. Now they're saying you bear the cost of vaccination, right? So this is, this is again, not federalism. This is convenience federalism and not cooperative federalism. So I think uh, the, the fact how federalism has been assaulted by this authoritarian regime is a very important reason 
why you see this kind of massive distress in the second wave. And Rajendran, that sounds very much like what happened here in the United States when it came to the Trump right. administration response. But so the reaction has been, Rajendran, has been here in the United States that, well, the Biden administration has pressured U.S. pharmaceutical companies to agree to waive intellectual property rights on the vaccines. How will that affect the people of India? What will be the impact of that? Because right now in the U.S. media, it's like, well, we've done our part. We're done we can move on. See, I, I think that's a definitely a good first step uh, as far as India is concerned because the vaccination rates in India are abysmal at this point. Uh, so I think if the central government procures the vaccination from, procures the vaccines from the West and does a centralized way of distributing vaccines across the country, I think that will go a long way rather than, uh, in, in, in fact, the worst thing that India has done right now is introducing private players into the whole vaccination program, especially in the light of uh, the way the last year has panned out. Uh, and as per a recent study by my own university, there is a Center for Sustainable Employment in my university. They've come up with a very damning report, which says that 230 million additional people have gone below the nominal minimum wage uh, in the country, which is very 375 rupees a day is the minimum wage. And 375 would be something like $6 a day. So we are talking 230 millions have gone below that threshold. Given that, if you privatize uh, vaccination at this point, it's, it's a no-brainer to know how will the people be able to afford it. So I think it's critical. I think that's a good step that uh, there are IP uh, intellectual property has been removed. But I think the central government has to step up its game in terms of procurement, in terms of distribution, creating some kind of standard operating procedure. There's nothing of that sort. There's nothing, absolutely zero. I have one. At this point. I have one last question for each of you. We have been speaking with Sayan Debshaudri and Rajendran Narayanan, co-authors of the monthly review article "A Made in India Shock Doctrine" with a little help from Latin America. You can follow Sayan Deb on Twitter at Sayan Deb, and you can follow Rajendran on Twitter at Rajendran underscore Nare. One last question for each of you, and as and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests, our final question is called the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Let's start with you, Syandeb. Uh Modi was elected. He won uh, an election by a huge amount back in 2019. So is Modi, being that the won an election based on promises he is fulfilling, no matter how cruel and inhumane, is he accurately uh, representing the majority of voters in India and therefore isn't whatever Modi is doing democracy in action? Well, uh, again, a very good question. Let me put it this way, that um, Modi supporters do put this very strongly, that, oh, he won, oh, he's our prime minister, oh, he's got so much. But let me put it this way, if in terms of voting percentage, Modi got about 37, if I'm not wrong, rather than correctly, you know, something like 37, 38% of the votes in 2019, or less, 35 in 2014, he actually got 31%, which means that even because in India it works in such ways that even a one person shift in voting can, can actually change the entire uh, uh, you know, structure of the executive, the parliament. 
So because this is not a direct uh, you know, presidential, I mean, it's not like America. So the point I'm trying to make is that by any logic, still about 40, 60, uh, 55 to 60 percent people or more, 65 percent people have not voted for me. They may not have voted for anybody single, so that person would have become the you know kind of the, the party. But technically, Modi has received, still receives the support and the vote of one third of the Indian electorate, which, which is always true for any premier in India. So, which means that there is a responsibility one to the other to the two thirds of Indian population who have not. So, the idea is to become the prime minister of all hundred percent and not just the thirty-one percent, of which, of course, there is a major majority are fanatically supporters. So. One is the is not really uh, chosen by even half the country's population. Number two is that the idea of this first one who reaches the post first kind of democracy is many people have pointed out it's a problem because it does not reflect the country's aspirations, collective aspirations. And Modi definitely does not uh, reflect the country's collective aspirations, the aspiration of what is actually a small number of middle class. Hindu, especially of North India, not even not even the whole India. Frankly. So you know, so of course there is a so so, it, so, so in, in on paper, he is a democratically elected leader, but there are so many deterrents to that one statement that it will be it will the sum of it is is bigger than him being considered as a democratically elected leader. And that's just it. Just reminds us how crises reveal the shortcomings of both representative yes. and parliamentarian yes. democracy. Uh, so, uh, Rajendran, uh, our question from hell for you is you and Sian Deb, you write about the violent mobs that have been uh, targeting Hindus and creating these random acts of violence throughout India and how this lack of a civil war style situation is far more effective when it comes to imposing rule over a minority. So to what extent has the pandemic, in your opinion, either through these violent mobs or through the actions of Modi and his policies, to what extent do you think in India the pandemic has killed democracy? Uh, well, I, the Hindutva agenda and the violence is so strong that even during the pandemic, one of the members of parliament of the BJP, which is Modi's party, just I'm not talking about I'm, I'm talking about just four or five days ago, communalized uh, healthcare frontline workers in the city of Bangalore, where I live. And he used that opportunity to single out uh, 16 people who are working day in and day out in this pandemic as health workers, as volunteers. And he's not just him, but there are three other members of uh, legislative assembly in the Karnataka state government who singled out Muslims and said that uh, and, and, and had very uh, terrible, violent words, which are actually criminal offense uh, if, if, if laws are uh, implemented in letter and spirit. So they are not even using the they, they're not even uh, they're, they're using the communal polarizing card even during a pandemic. And that's and, and, and the worst part is I also learned about how and, and there are whatsapp groups in india that are propagating a lot of false news and fake news throughout the country and one such 
fake news that's been circulating, which is fake, but the right-wing, Hindutva right-wing, seems to believe is that this is a biological warfare on India by some foreign agents. So that's the kind of pathetic display of uh, violent kind of splintered acts of violence that we are talking about. You don't see a civil war because it's happening through WhatsApp groups. You don't see a civil war because it's happening in a very, uh, it's not happening in a hush-hush manner, but people have become very emboldened to say these things, which 20 years ago, they would never have dreamt of saying these things. So that kind of bigotry has gained a lot of currency in the way uh, the discourse that the leaders are doing. And there's been a spate of lynchings, especially of Muslims and Dalits, who are uh, the other marginalized communities in the caste system in India. Uh, so these two, uh, these two segments of population have disproportionately borne the brunt of this kind of Hindutva assertion. And again, Hindutva is also very patriarchal in nature, by the way. So there's also a gender dimension to it. In fact, the text that the entire BJP, uh, which is resting on this, uh, this text called Manuspriti, it begins with the line that women are meant to be slaves of men. So that's, uh, that's the kind of patriarchal mindset that many people in the Hindutva agenda also believe. So it's gendered. It's, uh, it's against Muslims, it's against Dalits. So we are talking as in, yeah, and, and that's, that's kind of perpetrating. And uh, just to add a couple of points, we were also part of this uh, study called Hunger Watch, which tries to understand what has been the state of hunger in the country in October, four months, five months after the nationally imposed lockdown. And what we found was that as part of the survey, one in four Muslims and one in four Dalits, who are the so-called lower caste people, they experienced discrimination during lockdown. So the lockdown didn't spare the communal polarizing principle at all. So even that, that seems to be an undercurrent. Uh, what we really fear is, will that resurface on a massive scale once things stabilize a little bit? And if I may just add one quick point, which I wanted to make earlier, which is the, the cut on health budget. So even after the first wave that was so potent, the budget, when the union budget happened earlier this year, there was a cut on health budget. How do you explain that? How do you explain opaque election funding through something called instruments called electoral bonds, which no one knows? Uh, that's, again, a way for the political party to get money from from these big crony capitalists to further their agenda. So these are, uh, so that's, that's on how the election funding works and all the crony capitalists were supporting these big, uh, big, big parties, especially BJP was the recipient of, I think, more than 95%, 90% of electoral uh, funding through electoral bonds. And a large part of it is possibly coming from Ambani and Adani, two of the richest people in the country who are also pawning natural resources. So, it's a, it's a very insidious game that's being played, but we hope and, and, things would improve. Yeah and, yeah, and on top of that, you know, how do, how do you explain uh, overflowing supplies of food not being distributed to people during a time of starvation? I cannot thank the two of you for being on our show enough today. Sayandab Chaudhry and Rajendran Narayanan have been our guests. They wrote the article at Monthly Review, A Made in India Shock Doctrine, with a little help from Latin America. Thanks to both of you for being on our show. This really is fascinating writing. And look for us to be asking you to be back on the show again in the future because this really is incredible stuff. Thank you 
so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It's a privilege. Thank you so much. Yeah. Same here. Thank you so much for giving us an opportunity. Certainly. Thank you very much. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. And if you like what you just heard, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We can find all of our merchandise or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online. Subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, please remind us what's this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering the question so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? Alex J says, I remember when reverse cowgirl meant a damn minotaur. Can you, can you tell I reverse engineered the question from hell from that joke? Wow. It's my proudest moment. Wow. What are you old enough to remember? Greg G says nothing. No, I mean, I'm old enough to not remember anything. <laughs> Jeff C says, Henry Kissinger win the Nobel Peace Prize in ranting. How the hell did Kissinger win the Nobel Prize? <laughs> Walter B says, howdy doody. What are you old enough to remember? Nick A says, it's not so much age that has affected my memory as... Andrew P. says that the best way to fix Nintendo is by blowing in it. <laughs> what are you old enough to remember? Nelson, or Barrett M. says, Nelson Rockefeller banging my mom on his desk at One World Trade Center on Mother's Day. <laughs> Let's Damn. hope that didn't happen. Uh, Pete V. says, my past life as a Vita Peron. <laughs> Nathaniel S. says, black and white TV with rabbit ears in foil. What are you old enough to remember? Krimsky K. says, learning you cannot dry a hamster in a microwave. <laughs> Aaron B, when Elon Musk was more likely to be a cologne scent instead of a capitalist pig. Josh W says, identifiable moments in the zeitgeist. And Bradley R says, I vaguely remember feeling something. I thought it was hilarious this week that Elon Musk said he was the first person to ever be on Saturday Night Live who has Asperger's, therefore erasing the life of Dan Aykroyd. So, you know, it's all about Elon Musk. He looks like saying stuff without any evidence to back it up. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history on May 12th, 1976, 45 years ago this Wednesday, the career of the British rock singer Keith Rafe, I guess, had fallen into a slump after the breakup of the Yardbirds. Though the band had been successful in Europe and the United States, Rafe, as lead singer and frontman, had been overshadowed by a series of hotshot lead guitarists. First, Eric Clapton, oof, then Jeff Beck, and finally Jimmy Page, who ended up taking a revised version of the group off in another direction under the name of Led Zeppelin. Rafe was left behind, moving through a series of new short-lived projects and also dealing with serious health problems, including chronic asthma, which is never good news for a singer. So, an asthmatic singer is upstage by three of the most famous guitarists in rock and roll history. Got it. Still, Rafe was keeping busy, working on new music, and on the night of May 12, 1976, he went downstairs to the practice space in the basement of the house where he lived with his wife and two sons. The basement, where oddly rotten history does not take place as often as he'd think. It was Rafe's eight-year-old daughter, or sorry, it was Rafe's eight-year-old boy who reportedly found Rafe dead, clutching an electric guitar plugged into an unground amplifier, which means for two weeks in a row, Rotten History is featured a guitarist being electrocuted. Last week, we mentioned Alex Harvey of Stone the Crows, who was killed four years prior to Keith Rafe, also by an ungrounded amplifier. Apparently, Rafe had stood atop a metal gas pipe that ran across his basement floor. 
Gotta wonder the construction of his building, thus closing a circuit in giving himself a fatal electric shock in the years after his death at the age of 33. Rafe's reputation suffered an extra insult from a ridiculous urban legend that claimed he had been playing the electric ga- guitar in his bathtub, presumably stoned out of his mind. So, in the urban legend, the metal gas pipe somehow becomes plumbing, and the event moved from the basement to a bathtub, which is too bad because it's an opportunity lost for a lesson to be learned, and that is, when building your music studio, try not to have exposed metal pipes running along your studio floor, especially if you plan on playing electric instruments. In Rotten History on May 14, 1970, 51 years ago this Friday, a group of black students at Jackson State College in Mississippi were demonstrating in response to the National Guard killing of four students at Kent State University just 10 days earlier, as well as the recent U.S. bombing of Cambodia and military escalation in Southeast Asia and the high rates at which young African Americans and other minorities were being drafted. And it's important to remember the actual events that led to these protests. And this wasn't simply part of ongoing protests. Horrible events, the bombing and killing of civilians in an unpopular war that was expanding across borders. And having a draft that was racially unequal, that was pushing people out into the streets to stop what was clearly an unjust war being imposed on the people of the United States. A war that so few wanted to fight in, they had to force citizens to fight through the draft. The Jackson State College students were also fed up with racism at home in Mississippi, where they had endured harassment from white residents for years. To make matters worse, a false rumor was circulating that someone had murdered Charles Evers, mayor of the nearby town of Fayette and brother of Medgar Evers, the civil rights leader who was assassinated seven years earlier in 1963. As the night wore on, non-students began joining the protest, and white residents driving by the campus reported that rocks were thrown at their cars. The protesters also flipped a dump truck, parked at a nearby construction site, and set it on fire. The firefighters who showed up were so intimidated by the angry crowd that they called for protection, and 75 heavily armed city and state police quickly arrived on the scene. Once the fire was out, the firefighters left, but the police stayed and advanced on the protesters, backing them up against the Alexander Hall dormitory suddenly for reasons unclear to this day. They opened fire in a barrage, lasting half a minute, showering the building with almost 500 rounds of ammunition and blowing out all the windows on one side. Two people were killed, a married law student named Philip Lafayette Gibbs and a teenage high schooler named James Green, who had been passing by on the way home from his grocery store job. Twelve other college students were wounded by bullets and buckshot. A U.S. Senate panel would later find that the police failed to call for ambulances until after they had gone around picking up their empty shell casings. In other words, the cops were too busy covering up the crimes that they might be potentially charged with to help those who needed medical assistance. None of the shooters were arrested or convicted of any crime, and while the murder of white students at Kent State had made major headlines, the killing of black students at Jackson State received much less media coverage, but the pockmarks and bullet holes on the Alexander Hall dormitory were preserved and can still be seen to this day. While Jackson State did not get the media attention that Kent State did within activists and protest circles and through the huge anti-war movement, they all were very, very fully aware of what happened at Jackson State and were stunned by the media silence on the story. Jackson State was a response to Kent State, and they killed protesters on both campuses. The message had been sent, if you protest, we will turn the state on you, just as the state turned on civil rights protesters, and it had a chilling effect on the anti-war movement. That's Rotten History.
and this is hell. Alex, we're not doing a show tomorrow because I'm taking a mental health day. Uh, folks, I-, I need one really bad, so on tomorrow's This Is Hell meme, we'll, we'll be playing what Alex and I promised to be a fun interview because I definitely need something fun in my life right now. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, who's going to be on Wednesday's Thursday show? Any ideas yet? Uh, still working on it. I want to get back to booking stuff in advance so I can stop having stress dreams about not having anyone scheduled for the show yeah. and get back to having stress dreams about my body falling apart and my family dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my don't, stress dreams. Don't go are, to sleep, anyone. Yeah, my stress dreams are not doing well either. Although my blood pressure was definitely lower this weekend after exercising some, which is good. Thanks to Sayan Deb Chaudhry and Rajendran Narayanan. I almost got through the whole show without screwing it up, and then right at the end, I get the second name wrong. Co-authors of the monthly review article, A Made in India Shock Doctrine, and a little help with from uh, Latin America. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry, and thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for doing Rotten History. This week's hangover cure is see your doctor. They might send you to the hepatologist, but you really might need to see a psychiatrist and to figure out what a hepatologist is. Go back to the beginning of today's show. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>